We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. We are back. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. It's February. We've got a pod episode. For those of you that waited too long for this, because it's been more than a month, we apologize. This is how we roll during the offseason. We've got a lot of good stuff in this episode. Alan, feels good to be sitting next to you again. Yeah, we're here back in the studio, ready to record. It's good to be back with everybody talking some Gator football. And as always, despite this month off, we got some new patrons, which is amazing. Yeah, what up, people? What up, guys? Thank you so much for this. If you like the content on this show, like us on Facebook, become a patron on Patreon, uh, follow us on Twitter, send us a message, send us an email. We love to respond back to those. For those of you that have been hitting us up, although it may take us a day or two or three, we'll always get back to you. We love dialoguing with all of you guys. Uh, and then, you know, give us a dono. You want to give us a dono, a spring dono? Call it a February dono, a Valentine's Day dono, maybe? A oh, Valentine yeah. dono, I don't know. Uh, either way, thanks to our new patrons. We have Hillbilly Bren. Brennan, thank you. Welcome aboard as a medium dono. Matthew Fry upgrades himself from small to medium in January. Upgrade. Upgrade. And then a small dono comes in. Hey, Alexander. Alexander, if you're listening, listen closely here. Hey, Alexander, I want to work at Feather. Let's chat. His name is Chris Folsom, and that was the name he chose to display on his small dono. Potential so, new employee. Yeah, potential new employee. Recent UF grad looking for some work there, Alex. That's a creative way to put your resume out there. I love it. Yeah, no hundo bombs this past month, but still sitting on the throne. Alexander Leventhal, of course. Uh, Feather and his fans. Legions of them. All right, Alan. Indeed. A lot of stuff to cover on today's pod that's important. So... Not as much volume, but everything we're going to talk about here is is really important. As you know from listening to this podcast for a while, if you've been a veteran listener, how we view recruiting is definitely different than others. Uh, we really like to put this into a macro context and talk a lot about how this affects the program going forward, what it looks like compared to other programs. And this is an important one to evaluate. This is effectively the third class for Dan Mullen, but in reality, is second full class. And the trend here is going to be important. Signing day Trends itself yes. is overvalued. The class is what matters. What happens on the day itself tends to get a lot of news. We've talked about this a lot, Alan. But the signing day, not as important. The signing class, very important. Very, very important. 
Was this a successful signing day? Not the class, just the day. Yeah, this is an interesting question because you're if you spent any time on Gator message boards, which I peruse just to kind of see what some people are saying, uh, you might have gotten the sense at times that the sky was falling. Well, this was a successful day. Now, to categorize this uh, in two ways, one, this is kind of the official signing day, and the one in December is known as the early signing day. But as it's becoming college football, that's the real signing day, the one in December. This is like some sort of aftermath signing day, like cleaning up things signing day. We need a better name for it than just signing day because almost all the action happens in December. Now, some important things went on. But again, I think I said this the last time. I don't care at all really about the day itself. A lot of people put so much pressure on closing and you have flips and surprises and the drama of it. I'm, you know, I am interested in the drama, but the drama is so insignificant. What happens the day of is really not that important. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit, some of the hits and misses and some of the narrative of it. But that's not where we really excel is kind of the day to day coverage of it obviously we don't keep up with it we tend to think of this more in terms of like you said macro trends but also are you getting together the raw materials with which to win games and i think you and i both take the kind of view that you shouldn't live and die on whether one guy comes or this guy comes or the names involved necessarily now these guys will become very important but right now they're it's speculative they're you're trying to get the right types of guys and, you know, this is a little bit of a crapshoot. So you've got to, like, get enough shots at it to be successful, but not to ride too high and low with a certain guy this or a certain guy that. So we're going to talk about some of this. But let me just back up and say I do think that signing days was successful. Um, the big names come in, Xavier Henderson, little brother of C.J. Henderson, who committed a little while ago, and then – Gosh, I didn't prep to say his name. Princely you from Texas, a defensive end, uh, are the two guys who sent in their letters of intent who are high school players. So uh, two really important players at positions of need for the Gators. So uh, if you're looking just at profile of the players, those are two really big wins for the coaching staff. Yeah, so we went two for three if you're looking at the the high schoolers, and then three for four if you're going to count the transfer and Justin Shorter from Penn State. Sure, which is, you know, we kind of just assumed that he was in, right. but he still had to sign it. Still had to sign, but really two for three. So that's a, is that a good day? You got a surprise in Princely. That's a flip. That's good. And then you had a, a surprise the other way with Avante, who goes to Miami, who was very disappointing. Yeah, highly 50, rated safety. Top 50 guy. Our next, you know, our next safety is a four-star, but he's 271 versus, you know, 44. There's a difference in my mind between those two players, at least, again, at a starting block. there's It's not to say that he couldn't become better than Avante, but if you're loading up your boat, you're stargazing, so to speak, you want that. And I think the story there is Miami brought Ed Reed into the fold. And Ed Reed is the greatest safety of all time. And he was able to convince and surprisingly pull this kid away from Florida. It was down to us in Miami. However, you win some, you lose some. Is it frustrating? Yes. I got asked that question a lot on signing day. Yes, I'm frustrated. I don't want to lose that guy. That's an important position. We'll talk about how many safeties we signed. That is going to happen in recruiting. It happens even to the best teams. Uh, unfortunately for us, we have a smaller margin for error. So one disappointment on signing day itself, 
and then one big surprise win. Do they equal each other out? I don't think so per se, but I can tell you the coaching staff is super, super high on Princely. They think this is a guy that was underrated by the services. And if you follow that kind of thing, then this is a big get for the staff. All right, Alan, let's look at where we were on signing day, early signing day, December 18th, and then what transpired transpired between you know yesterday and then then. So we can kind of give you an idea of how much of the recruiting work is actually done at early signing day versus final signing day. So had 24 commits, two top 100 guys, 16 four-stars at the time. And again, some of these rankings changed too, which is interesting. Uh, 12 in the top 300, 8th nationally, 6th in the SEC. Final ranking, somewhat similar, 8th, 6th in the SEC. But essentially those numbers, like if you look at the composite score, were essentially tied with Auburn with like very small percentage points separating. So if you want to look at that in slightly more rosy colored glasses, you could say we're essentially seventh, uh, maybe in tied for fifth overall. Um, ninth and fifth last year, so kind of the same. The overall rating was a tad bit higher if you just do the average of those. Uh, so 25 commits um, total right now. And then commits to, we're talking about the beginning, is that includes guys who were remained committed but hadn't signed. We're going to talk about those guys in a minute. So the numbers are a little squishy. Uh, one elite player, Gervin Dexter, a guy who made it into the top 15 or so of the composite score. Four guys overall in the top 100, 13 top 300. Another way to look at it, 17 four stars and one five-star guy. So we're going to get into James's, I guess, trademark tier system here in a second. Um, but as he looks at it, moved up from tier three to tier two. And if you look at the transfers, which you got asked about this a lot, there's a lot, there's several transfers, Lorenzo Lingard, Justin Shorter, Brenton Cox, if you want to add him into this mix, um, Jordan Pouncey moves the class up like very much. So in terms of star power, add in three, five star guys to that kind of miss mix. And you're looking at a more prestigious class. Now um, you, so you can look at overall talent upgrades, how the staff did, but for our purposes here, we're largely going to look at the high schoolers, and we'll talk about the, the transfers. Those are very important, but they kind of skew the numbers a little bit because everyone is gaining and losing people around the portal. Maybe the Gators are doing a better job than others, but overall we're just going to mainly stick to the high schoolers for the purpose of this conversation. Um, James, does that sum up kind of the narrative of where we were and where we are now? Yeah, and so I think what's interesting about the tier system is it, it puts extra emphasis on the top part of your class, which in reality should be most of your players that start. If you're doing a good job identifying talent, you're getting a, a top-heavy class, most of those guys are going to form the bevy of your starters. Those are the guys you're going to lean on the most. And if we look at it that way, the question every Gator fan should be asking is, did we progress from last year to this year in recruiting? The answer, if you just look at the 247 rankings, would be probably not. Same. Same exact score. Same exact shuffling. The answer under the tier rankings is is yes. Yes, we did. We signed one elite player. We moved up our class in aggregate, signing more top 100s, more top 300s. Uh, even if it's only a couple of players, that will make a difference. That is a small progression. It's something you want to see. And that does go from tier three to tier two. It's the first tier two class we've had under Dan Mullen. Uh, also, if you do factor in those transfers, we are solidly a tier one. And that would give you a, a top tier one class would be right there with Alabama and Georgia. Should you factor them in? 
sure, they're a part of the class. They're going to start potentially playing maybe next year, maybe the year after, depending on waivers. Is this the same recruiting battle? It is not. So it's safe to say right now, Alan, that Florida is the king at this point of the transfer market. We are the Alabama and the Georgia of transfers. That's just the way that it is. We are number one in the country. We are pulling the best guys. We are very attractive for them to come. I think a lot of that has to do with our reputation for developing talent. And that is why they're coming. And that's a great thing. I'm not going to diminish that at all. Because ultimately, it just the bottom line is, what are the players in your program and what is their talent level? Correct. And that's important. And that's important. So we can talk all day about attitude or issues or why they didn't play somewhere. But look, Joe Burrow couldn't earn a starting spot on Ohio State's roster. And he's going to be the number one overall pick and just presided over one of the best college football teams ever. So if you're going to devalue transfers as some sort of damaged goods situation, don't do it. There's plenty of guys who have not fit that bill. But again, it is different than recruiting these guys. You're going to recruit for two, three, four years in a cycle and get them to come to your school. These are two different skill sets. Right now, Dan Mullen, the staff, the best at the transfer market. And we are where we are, but progressing in the high school market, if you will. So we're good. Are we where we need to be? Not quite yet. Did we take a step in the right direction? We did. Am I hopeful that for the 2021 class, we take another step forward? Yes, we need to keep progressing. In our opinion on this show, Alan, we need to average a high tier two class, which means occasionally we'll slide into tier one and occasionally we'll be tier three. But when you average them out every four years, you need to be up on the top of the tier two because everyone else we're competing with, right? Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Texas A&M, you know, Auburn, these schools are going to be there as well. If you want to win a playoff, correct? basically win an SEC title and then two playoff games, you're going to have to beat at least two elite teams, probably three. And that's what the Gators are aiming at. Um, we're very clearly in that next level where we can beat anybody else. And, I, you know, we lost to Georgia and LSU. Those games were competitive. Where they're within reach. And so maybe this recruiting class gets us that much closer where we can win. Maybe you can win one to two of those. And maybe you don't have enough bullets for three. Who knows? Uh, it's not an exact science. But it gets you a little bit closer. Uh, I do think that the staff understands the need to bring in these high-level guys. They're taking some chances on these transfers. Transfers, like you said, it's not a damaged goods, but it's a mixed bag. You have to do your homework just like you would in high school recruiting. There's a reason these guys are transferring. Some are good reasons. Some are bad reasons. But the staff has shown thus far that they've maximized that window. Now we'll see. What, they're taking more and more of these guys. So hopefully that continues the overall trend line. But I do think it was a good class, a very solid class um, with some high-level players. And I, I think that's going to help You know, hopefully this next year and in the years to come. This is good. And so if you're wondering, again, if you're new to the tier system, a quick refresher of what it is. To be a tier one school, you need two top 30-ish players. Those tend to be about your five, five stars. Star, yeah. You need six or more top 100 players and 13 or more top 300 And those numbers players. like fit inside one of the right? So six, the six top 100 would include the top. Correct. They include. Exactly yeah. right. It's building upon each other. Tier two, which we are without the transfers, and you can see this readily available, at one or so top 30 players. That's Gervin. Four top 100. That's exactly what we have. And then 11 top 300. We have more than 11. And then tier three is zero to one. So you can you sometimes have one, sometimes don't. Two top 100s, eight plus top 300s. So we were in tier three, moved to tier two. Factor in the transfers, you're tier one. 
it works nicely to get a landscape of how different the top of the recruiting board is. So this year, for example, you have some very solid tier ones. You have Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, LSU, very solid tier one recruiting schools. A&M is borderline tier one. They moved up some. I'm going to call them one and a half. They're not quite what those schools are, but they're close. And then oddly enough, you actually only really have Florida as the solo tier two school this year. Auburn, Texas, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, uh, Tennessee, a couple others behind us. They're definitely not as top heavy as we are. And that's why I like the tier system because 247's numbers are weird. You can look at our score of 274 versus 271 versus 269. What does that even mean? In my opinion, there are differences. One or two more top 100 players is significant, Alan. That is a big difference in talent. It's not just you know five little decimal points at the end of your score. That's a whole person. It's a human being. It makes a big deal. The more top-heavy you are, the better it should be if you can also develop talent. So that's really interesting. So looking at the, if you're going to look up the 247 composite and you see the team rankings, we obsess with this a little bit. You know, looking at this, I think the recruiting industry and college football world looks at this a ton. You know, you can, it's sometimes splitting hairs, right? The Auburn, Florida and Auburn are basically at 274 point something. So on the 247 composite, you know, we're, for all intents and purposes, tied with Auburn. But you, using the James trademark tier system, would actually put us a tier above Auburn. And that's because of the value of top-end players. Um, do you think that that is a, a, I don't know, fairer is not the right word, better assessment um, for, I don't know, for the overall program or what? What makes you want to slice it that thinly in a, in that direction? I think it's because the data that says what your roster has to have to win a title says that it has to be top-heavy enough. You can look at blue-chip ratio, which is good. I think it's a little oversimplified. At the end of the day, you need so many top 100 players. You just have to have them. And this is where you started off the, the show, Alan, with recruiting, saying we're not going to fall in love with individual names. And each one of these high school kids, of course, has an individual name and a personality. But at the end of the day, if you're looking at it as a coach, these are resources you're investing in. And you're looking at it and saying, well, there's so many five stars and so many four stars or so many top 30s or so many top 100s. And there's so many guys I like that are rated below that, whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, if you're doing a good job recruiting, you're going to wind up with a lot of top heavy talent on your team. And that's good. That's what you need because as Alabama just showed this past year, right, they're going to show this draft, Alan. They're going to have like 12 guys go in the NFL draft. Now, did they win a title? No, you still have to have things go right. People have to stay healthy. It's not a surefire formula to win a title. But if you have a team that has 12 NFL caliber players on it and it's playing against a team with Florida that might have four, that is an advantage, period. And that's what recruiting does for you. The tier system helps to better explain the advantages. So what it does is this, when you go to 2021 and you look at our schedule and you say, how many tier one teams may we have to play? Basically, how many teams do we have a disadvantage against talent-wise? It's significant enough for them to be a tier above us. And look at that. And you could say, okay, there's going to be two or three if you win a national title. Okay, great. That is a lot. That would require a very magical season. I think it's a better way, Alan, to gauge how important these things mean rather than saying, Georgia's first and we're eighth because that may not be a big difference at all but if it's a tier difference it is a big right and that's the right way to try to encapsulate what it looks like so look at your four-year ranking if you're a tier three school 
and you wind up winning 10 games every year and you're in the SEC, you have overachieved. It's kind of a nice way to look at, is your, are your coachings, are they better developers of talent or are they better acquirers of talent? And it's a good way to kind of reference all of those things in, in a nice little box that's simple to understand versus you know arbitrary numbers next to a team. So another way to talk about this in terms of giving you some perspective on the teams above us, Georgia took in four or five stars, Alabama four or five stars, Clemson five five stars, LSU three, Ohio State three, Texas A&M two. So there's a – not that there's necessarily a very clear demarcation. Let's say there's 35 stars and the 32nd guy, why is he not a five star? You know, does it – someone on the weird composite math, you know, that doesn't matter that much. You could split some hairs, but you can see just, if you're just going to quickly look at it, the teams above is bringing the elite, elite guys. Now, again, it's not always right, but generally it is. So you can just use that as a metric to say, who's bringing the best talent. And there's a very clear difference, right? So we have one guy. And again, if you looked at ours, the four star numbers are Interesting. There is a huge range of guys who are four stars. Top 100 is interesting. Now, let's say, you know, we had one five star, but then we had eight top 100s. That probably balances that out. You're like, is there really a difference between the guy 30 and 60 that much? You're like, we're, you almost accumulate all those guys and be like, we're, we're, ju- we're right up there with the top guys. Now, again, we don't have that many, uh, top 100 guys comparatively so where you would look at that's a basically an equal talent equivalent so you can slice this in other ways but i think the big point is that there's a very clear difference between those top three to four schools and everybody else now somebody interesting just a little down the road um from us in the ranking 12th in the composite but oregon taking in three five stars this is like the old clemson kind of class where they're really top-heavy, and they hit on all those guys. Now, if Oregon can start to maximize that, you know they're dangerous because you get enough. They took in the number one player last year, Kayvon Thibodeau. They've been bringing in some really high-level guys, and that can be the difference in winning your conference or not is one or two guys if they pan out. Yeah, that's a great point uh, with Oregon. We didn't mention Oregon in our in our tier rankings there. Uh, they but they would, only have seven four stars, right? And they would fit a tier two because they still have you know four plus top one hundreds, and they have they have top one hundreds. The reason they don't fit a tier two is they don't have enough top three hundreds. They're right at the bubble. They're like right there. But that's splitting hairs. I think you could aggregate it. But the point is. Oregon, to me, would be ahead of Auburn, Texas, Oklahoma, Notre Dame in yeah, my rankings because that matters. If you hit, you have to hit, obviously, but the likelihood of hitting on a five-star is higher than hitting on a four-star is higher than hitting on a three-star. So if you're, if you're doing your evaluations correctly, you would expect them to get more top-level starters. That matters more. And so, again, in the James Tier rankings, to me, Oregon is probably right behind us is the way that this goes. It's Auburn and Florida right in there and then Oregon. Uh, it doesn't really matter, but it's good to note that because that is exactly, Alan, what Clemson did. Is they kept nailing their one or two elite players, and those one or two elite players transformed their roster, like a Deshaun Watson, for example. And we could name plenty more. That's really important. So on this podcast, both Alan and I put a heavy emphasis on top-level talent. That doesn't mean that coaches can't identify undervalued talent. But to all of you who freak out on the recruiting systems, who act like it's so rigged, 
Let the Gervin Dexter tale be something that builds some confidence for you. You know what? By the end, they got it right. He kept dominating in camps. He kept rising up the rankings. And at the end, he got a ranking that was worthy of his performance. It's not always going to be perfect. Humans are involved here. But at the end of the day, these rankings do move and shift. And if you are a high-value player that has eyeballs on you and you keep dominating these camps, they're not going to bury your ranking because Alabama is giving them money behind closed doors or Georgia is funneling them money. It's just not the way that it works. Not in general, not significantly enough. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's safe to say that we are pleased with this class with regards to progress satisfied no one recruiting you should never be satisfied you're trying to get the building blocks that let you win a national title if you're satisfied with a slightly worse team than someone else that's just not a good mindset but this is progress and this is consistency and I think the best thing Alan is I've heard from several sources that Dan Mullen continues to know that the one area he really needs to improve on is still recruiting He's aware of that. I think he feels great with how development is going, how facilities are going to go, how fan base interaction is. I think he knows this is still something that has vast levels of improvement. And I would expect to see more support staff and more resources flowing into this as the next year or two go on, because this is the spot we can most improve in, in my opinion. Okay, so the Gators are now in James's tier two. So what does that mean? All right, that means we get a little closer to kind of elite level. But what does that translate on the field for the Gators? Well, it should mean next year. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. If you caught a podcast midway through the season, we talked about what the defense could look like in 2020. And the answer was, well, basically, you're going to be upgrading from three-star players to four-star players. That's a very real upgrade, right? However much you liked David Reese, the guy behind him should be better. If you have five, 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 five stars waiting to replace a three-star David Reese, one of them should be better than David Reese. That's kind of how this works. Now, we don't have that, but that's, a, that's an overly simplified example. I would expect in camp, Alan, you're going to have more intense position battles, and competition drives a better result. Now, all of a sudden, if you're a top 50 guy and you're going up against a top 50 guy, that's going to make you better. If you're the only top 50 guy on the team and all day long in practice, you're going up against a top 400 guy and you're killing him all of your practice time is really kind of wasted you're working on footwork and technique but you are not getting to go against guys who can make you go outside your comfort zone the best teams have great practices where they're able to compete against each other prime example of this is the 04s in basketball if you love that team you'll hear them talk non-stop about how practice for them was often their most intense game scenario It was the hardest for them to beat each other And that's what this really does, is this is what this does, is the more top-end talent you have, the more speed, the more size, the more skill, the better your training, the better your practice, the better your team chemistry, the better your development. And then therefore, on Saturdays, when you play against teams that are equal talent to you, if you are the better developer as a coach, you're going to win more often than you're going to lose. And that's what this really means. We're closer to winning more of the elite games in 2020 than we were in 2019, 2018, 2017, and so on. And that is the progress we're looking for. That's what the tier upgrade means. We have a better chance of beating elite teams. Yeah, it's interesting because recruiting is not like a the quick fix strategy. If you if too many of these guys are playing, that means you have too many holes on your roster. Now, doesn't mean you won't get like a Daryl Stingley, like a elite level guy who played corner for LSU, who steps up and plays. We've had freshmen play. It's not the worst thing if they're supremely talented. But you'd rather have a equally talented junior who's been playing for a year and a half. 
so it's not necessarily that these guys are going to show up on the field in the fall, but I think it does create more depth, creates um, better competition, like you said. And the depth thing is interesting because I think it allows guys to stay fresher longer too. Um, this is going to be a fascinating year for the Gators. We're going to get to the, a little bit more of the macro picture of that. But I think if to survive over the course of a SEC season, you need a ton of these guys. This is always the knock on a team like, I hate to keep picking on them, or maybe I don't, UCF, that they couldn't survive the grind of an SEC season because there'd be too many guys missing. When those guys were missing, they would lose games. Now, you can maybe lose some of your best guys and still win in smaller conferences, but to win week in, week out in the SEC, you you can't slip up that much. You can't lose that many guys. There'll be a Kentucky, there'll be a South Carolina who will take you down, you know, Ask Georgia how often they have liked to lose to teams like South Carolina. So I think, you know, not necessarily does it move the Gators ceiling up that much this year, maybe slightly, but it's paving the way for a program to be better year in, year out. And, you know, we're often impatient as fans, but I think Dan Mullen wants to get this thing up as fast as he can. But also, if you're continuing to build in the right way, it's better for the long-term sustainability of the program as well. Okay, so the major question mark for you when we hired Dan Mullen was as a recruiter. And there were some other question marks that he's kind of checked off along the way, but this was the big one. Is this in a meaningful milestone at all or just a small step in the right direction? This is a meaningful milestone because it is proving tier two is not tier three. I've said that all along. It's much harder to get into tier two. It's just harder. You have to sign an elite guy. Yes, we only have one. We narrowly missed on a guy who was almost another one in Avante, right? He's close. He's in the border. But this is still progress and identification that it's that it's a need. I think if Mullen were to keep saying, we like our evaluation, rankings are overrated, we don't need better players, I would be worried. I would say this is not a milestone. This is bad. He's not saying that. I think he knows what I hear from the inner circles is he knows we can always have better talent. I give him a check mark for that. That's important. Number two, we had two big questions for him, Alan, coming in. We said he'd win a lot of games. We said he'd probably average winning nine and a half games a year. That would that'd be something we thought he would do. That was not to diminish him as a coach. That's to give him praise. We didn't know what was going to happen with his offense. Me particularly did not like the Dan Mullen 1.0 offense as a championship winning offense. I like it as a win gainer, not a championship of a winning. Well, something magical happened in 2019 where we might be seeing the metamorphosis of Dan Mullen. I don't know. We're going to find out. Only time will tell. So that has me giddy. That has me feeling very different as anyone listening to this podcast this year has found about the future of Florida. That box is temporarily checked. We still need to see what happens in a post-Kyle Trask world right now, temporarily checked, which leaves us with recruiting. So where are we? Are we where we need to be? No. Is he exceeding what he's ever done before by a long shot? Yes. Did he make changes to the staff a year ago to get this result? Yes. Should he consider making more changes in the future to get an even better result? Probably. It becomes a slippery slope. There is a certain level where if you have a great coach that can build four-star talent, you may not want to get rid of him to get a five-star talent coach who can't coach at all. So these are considerations you have to have. 
But I think the answer to your question as simply as possible is yes, he's proved to me that he can now recruit at this tier two level. He's proved to me that he's building on it every single year. And that's the biggest thing, right? Somebody who's skilled at something, Alan, continues to get more fruit almost every year. Not always. You can't control all the variables. But you see a general trend line of progression. And that's what I'm seeing. And that's proving, of course, data will always prove these things, that we are headed in the right direction. And this, of course, is the ever-critical year three for Dan Mullen in the James three-year test. I guess I have my two trademarks, the tier system and the three-year test. This will be the three-year test. And this year, as we keep hinting at, could be a special year for Florida, which we'll talk about later in the show. Now, one thing we've talked not at all about that's really important is composition of the roster. So yes, you can chase talent, but you also have to build a balanced roster. You must address your positions of need, make sure you have enough depth, we knew that McIlwain whiffed on this so hard, and so did Will Muschamp. At times, they almost paid no attention to actual depth chart issues. Mullen is much better at this. Let's walk through how many players we took at each position and then have you address whether we have any issues or holes that we need to address. So just quickly here, we took one quarterback, two wide receivers, one tight end, four O-linemen, Four defensive tackles, one strong side defensive end, one buck linebacker, one traditional linebacker, four corners, three safeties, and one punter. So just to run that down quickly, don't need to know all the numbers there, but let's talk about it a little bit in terms of like kind of the groups. So any questions you have? Well, right away, I noticed you didn't name a certain position group yes. there. There was a zero that did not get taken. We took no running backs. Right. This was really interesting, I think, move by the staff. Now, we chased a couple of very top-end guys and then kind of sat it out. The caveat to this is the transfer Lorenzo Lingard, the former five-star guy from Miami. And you never know, but it looks like he might be eligible right away if they award him kind of that retroactive red shirt because he didn't play in that many games last year. So if he's eligible... That's essentially taking one running back in this class. Now, again, he his eligibility isn't the same, so it's not exactly the same. But we still have, do have four of the running backs on this roster. I I don't hate on the coaches for going stars or bust in this class, considering they got Lingard in this class. So I don't think it ha- it's like a huge miss, but they didn't land any of the elite guys, which is what they're aiming. I don't think that would have been worth it to them to take a mid-level guy in this class. No, and that makes sense. Let's unpack that for a second. So Pierce is expected to be your starter, right? Guy's been in the program now for two years. Big body, four-star recruit. Mm-hmm. You have Malik Davis, who's been around for a long time. Never been the same post right. the ACL, but Big a guy who's got mark. a lot of experience. And then from there, you have Lingard, who would factor in as a potential right. number one guy. So you have two guys you're probably, if both healthy, comfortable with on paper, and in our plus of the position in Pierce and Lingard. Davis is a question mark from what we've seen. Probably nothing exciting. What's after that? Uh, question marks. Iverson Clement, who hasn't really played at all. Maybe we'll get some playing time as a third down kind of guy this year. And Naquan Wright, who's a smaller guy who was a freshman last year and redshirted. So not a lot of carries to go around thus far. Doesn't mean they can't do it. 
but they don't seem to profile as like the big time back, but they could certainly turn into guys who can carry something for the program. I, I think next year you would be looking at throwing all your weight behind taking one to two elite level running backs. So we have enough guys here, especially with Lingard coming in that this wasn't like a huge, huge disaster, but this is a place where the talent could be definitely upgraded in the future. Yeah. So I look at it like this. We have five running backs in the roster. As you just mentioned, you have two, which you would project to be starting level talent. Then you have a guy that could get it done if stuff hit the fan and Malik Davis knows what he's doing, knows the system. Well, if he can get back to where he was his freshman year, he is a starting level running back. Correct. Uh, but a worst case scenario, knows what he's doing, knows what's happening. And then you have you know a question mark who could play. And then you have a guy who you probably wouldn't want to play right now. You have enough depth there. And then you're looking at a guy in Evans who's an enigma, right? We won't talk too much about him. But the number one <laughs> overall running back who's signed with no one, not going to sign till March, sliding around, knows what's happening. We are still in play for him. Yeah, and but from what I understand, the coaching staff chaos. still thinks we have a shot with him. We're not going to, we don't, we don't talk about individual players much. But I think what I'm getting across here is that running backs, especially, if you get a five star all world running back and they're good enough, they can, they can be very effective by the midseason of their freshman year and then so on. So right now, we're on sort of this kind of pace to where if we didn't sign a single running back this year, next year you'd probably take two or three and you would take a mid level guy that you thought had a lot of upside which I'm sure this year we didn't think there was a mid-level guy with a lot of upside. And that's the problem. Why just take a mid-level guy that you never expect to be an SEC-level starter and put him on your roster? It doesn't make any sense. It makes right. no sense. So I'm okay with that. We don't have a situation like we had a couple of years ago where we needed offensive linemen really badly and just took nobody. Yeah. Then you wind up with no bodies and you're like putting an ad out for walk-ons. We're not there with running backs, so I'm not going to panic about that. I'm okay with that. I think you and I both are okay with that given how things went down. What else do you see? What jumps out to me, Alan, is the the four corners and the three safeties. So we have seven back end guys. That's yeah, you know, I think that's really significant. That we're fine this year. You wouldn't be like, oh no, there's no depth there. But you're losing a lot of guys coming up very quickly. Those classes tend to get really bunched. If you there's a the problem. If you take four guys in a class, then they all maybe leave at the same time. So you don't want it to be that heavy, but we needed some big numbers in this class and hopefully continue to even that out. But need a lot of corners, need a lot of safeties. There's still a chance for one more of these guys to come in. If Mark Britt, who's committed but unsigned, one of those kind of guys that's a weird outlier, maybe that safety number even goes up to four. So very important for the – I don't know, the overall roster construction to take a ton of defensive secondary guys. None of these guys are jump off the page high end like a Kyer Elam or a Chris Steele who was here for you know ten minutes, but potentially a lot of very solid guys. Um, so interesting to see how those guys stack up and which guys make it and which guys don't. You know, it, the numbers there are, are the important part. And the highlight of this class, really, I think maybe one of the best talent halls ever at this position group is the D-line. Yes. So especially a defensive tackle, which is the biggest hole on our roster by far, uh, only took one last year, um, whiffed on it the year before. So we're, they've taken enough guys in where seemed like this year – wouldn't matter, but if they didn't get this kind of haul this year, we're going to be in major trouble next year. And they took four guys. They're all four-star. One of them, Gervin Dexter, who's a 
you know, the top guy in our class. All these guys seem like they're legit dudes, and you can never have enough defensive tackles. And some of these guys have a little positional flexibility. Maybe they could play some big end for us in our 3-4. But huge job by the staff. I mean, really amazing. Um, and then, you know, taking a traditional defensive end, which I think was a big win, and getting a really so- solid buck linebacker prospect to go with the transfer of Brenton Cox. So the defensive line influx of talent is enormous this year. Yeah, this is huge. And we highlighted this all last year. Defensive tackle has been killing us on defense. It's been such a a just suboptimal position group for us. Although we did get some nice performances towards the end of the year. We did hang on to our D tackles. They didn't leave the program, which is huge. We have now all of a sudden in one recruiting class, why recruiting is so important, gone from this is really dangerous, really bad. We don't have enough talent. The talent we have starting is blossoming some, but isn't enough. There's no one behind them. To now you're going to have veteran level starters with super talented young guys learning behind them, getting some safe playing time. This is the optimal situation to build a defensive line in the SEC. This right here could be something we look at on this podcast in the future as a hallmark as to whether or not this Gators team in the future can win something. It could be this kind of year in recruiting. So great job by the staff. Great job by Dan Mullen changing some coaches to get this result to happen. This was an absolute home run. And the last thing that sticks out for me is we we took four O-linemen, finally catching us back up after all of these years to where we have enough offensive linemen, we have enough talent now at the O-line spot that every year from here on out should just continue to make our O-line better. And right. that is you're a not welcome a, change. You're not at a crisis point where you can still just take two to three to four guys every year, depending on who you like and other factors that go in, whether a guy transfers or gets hurt or whatever. So you're hopefully not in crisis point after these last two years. Even, but you never know, right? So last year, I mean, two of the guys that we recruited never made it on campus through one through eligibility and the other through weird visa issues. So, you know, it's never say never, but as much as this class or this staff can do for this class, it was um, you know, a good job by them bringing in solid numbers in that position. Also, I think... You know, two high-end guys bringing in Xavier Henderson and Derek Wingo at linebacker. So wide receiver and linebacker didn't bring in a lot of guys, but the guys they did bring in, high-end guys. Those guys are both top 100 guys, close to elite-level status in terms of the services. And that's what you want to see when you're bringing in just one or two. Did you bring in top-end guys? So that you know, kind of keeps the ball rolling with numbers in these classes. And again, we brought in some transfers from the wide receiver spot as well. So that kind of shores up those positions too. Yeah. All in all, I think we're not going to grade these grades are sort of weird things, but hopefully you get the picture that relatively speaking, this is progression. If you throw in the transfers and they all contribute and they all play, then this class will be one of the highest rated classes since really urban Meyer. I mean, Will Muschamp had a, a top five class in there, but it wouldn't have looked like this class if you're looking at balance, skill set, heavy top weighting, number of top 100s, if you factor in the transfers. And if you're oh, saying, well, well, why wouldn't you? Well, I mean, you should. But again, I think there's two distinct skill sets we've addressed earlier. It's good to look at both of them. We are the undisputed kings of the transfer market, and that is helping us. Let's make no mistake, that is helping us. Van Jefferson, talk to any of the guys on 
Florida secondary. Who's the toughest cover? It was Van Jefferson. He was a transfer. Uh, lastly, Alan, to your point on transfers, Van Jefferson was productive in the SEC before he transferred. A guy with Penn State's Justin Shorter is phenomenal on paper, barely did anything at Penn State. Does that mean he won't do anything here? No, but it's not the same. He hasn't already produced. So we have a couple of things to figure out there. The roster is more talented in 2020 uh, than it was in 2019. And that's the goal of, I think, any program is you want to get better every single year and absorb the transition years, which you will have. Uh, So far, we've just been continuing to build and sort of get better pieces. And can't not mention the fact that we took an Australian punter. His name is Jeremy Crawshaw. I hope he's as good as he is in my mind. If you take an Australian punter, that means you're going to win some games because of him. So hopefully he steps right in for the departed Tommy T. Seems like they wouldn't have taken him if they didn't expect him to do that. So, you know, I don't know how you find an Australian punter, but they did it. So kudos to the staff for that, too. I know that makes Caleb Sturgis very happy. Shout out to you, Caleb. Uh, You were stoked about getting an Australian punter. You believed in them in college from the beginning. Uh, But either way, yes, we finally get one of those. We've always watched them from afar, and now we have our own. So we'll see what that feels like. We'll get to our news and notes section. But first, today's show is partially brought to you by Manscaped. That's right. The Manscaped live read is back. Uh, I know that one Danny Warfel personally enjoys these the most. He told me so via a phone call. So, Danny, it's back. Enjoy it. Enjoy, Danny. A couple of fun stats here, as always. Dr. Drew says that 85% of women think bad grooming is a major turnoff. Now, Alan, 80, 15% must not think it's a bad turnoff. They must think bad grooming is amazing. I don't know. 80% of women think men should manscape below the belt. Not entirely surprising. Again, it's a grooming thing. And 90% think that good grooming is essential to professional success. I would hope so. I guess it depends on what you're doing for a living, right? If you're out fur trapping, then good grooming probably is not a potential, you know, hindrance to your success. You can do what you want. But at the end of the day, Manscaped's actually been a great partner, and they send us all sorts of stuff, which is really funny. The names of them, which I won't read aloud on the air, but they're creative. You should go to their website. It's manscaped.com. You get 20% off and free shipping with the code GOGATERS at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com, code is go gators and one more time manscape.com go gators 20 percent off free shipping we really appreciate all the support we've been getting in fact we have more live reads coming in the pipeline this spring but uh thanks to manscaped for being a sponsor of the show and since they're sponsoring the news and notes section let's lead off with some positive news the guy that we wanted to come back alan is coming back Kadarius tony back for 2020 right it was kind of confusing i'll use that word as to him even considering leaving. Now there's lots of good reasons to go. And sometimes life circumstances will force you into a tough decision. But from a football development perspective, there was no reason for him to go. We talked a lot about him having big opportunities in this offense and him needing those opportunities to improve his draft status. So he's coming back. That's good news for him, I think, and good news for the program. Larry Scott leaving. How do you feel about this? You know, I, I'm i never too privy to like how our coaching staff stacks up. You know, you're kind of just looking at the project on the field. Larry Scott, our tight ends coach, you know, if you want to look at his star protege, Kyle Pitts, he's a great tight end coach. I don't, I don't know how much credit he gets for that, but certainly looks good on paper. He's going to be a head coach, I believe, at Howard. 
that hasn't officially been announced yet, but Dan Mullen's talking about him leaving, so I guess he is. That leaves one on-field position coach for Dan Mullen to hire. We'll see what what he does. He Does he hire a traditional tight ends coach? Does he shift around some duties, hire a different kind of guy? Remains to be seen. But I, I think, at least reading the tea leaves from what Dan Mullen has said, they're going to try to hire a guy with a tight end background. So, you know, it's kind of an odd timing post-signing day, but I don't think it ruffled any feathers in this class. We only had one tight end, and he's a legacy kid, so I don't think it mattered too much to him. And interesting here, but if you're a tight ends coach, you've got to look at this Florida job this year as a mega opportunity because of what you just said. How good is Larry Scott? I don't know. Could be the best ever. Kyle Pitts is a, is a freak right now, right? If you come in and Kyle Pitts stays healthy with Trask, you would expect that you're going to get to put on your resume, you coached Kyle Pitts, who did this and that. So interesting to see who we go after here. I think we could make a solid hire. I'm glad we're looking after a tight end specific coach. I think that Dan Mullen is wise to recognize the importance of that position, especially if you look at the NFL, Allen, and how the tight end maybe is becoming one of the most, if not the most important position on offense besides quarterback. Rumors were floating. In fact, so much so that people thought it was a done deal. Yeah, they reported it done. Yeah, right. It didn't happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But Charlie Strong and Kerwin Bell are supposed to be hired as analysts, so not on-field coaches. Analysts. What do you make of this? Well, it's definitely not a done deal yet. I think Dan addressed it slightly in saying that you really have to wait for the kind of shuffling to be done because guys would, of course, like to be on-field coaches rather than analysts. Now, what is an analyst? What's well, kind of a murky catch-all term for off-field coaches. So this has been the big revolution in the last 10 years, if you're not aware of, of the bigger programs like Alabama, upping their support staff. So these are guys who are doing scouting. They're doing prep work. They're not allowed to do like any on-field coaching. What does that mean exactly? I'm not sure. It's a different level of pay and prestige, certainly. But it used to be maybe you had a guy or two guys. Now Alabama is hiring an army of these guys like people like Charlie Strong, who former head coaches are now filling some of these analyst positions, obviously super overqualified to do that. But if you have enough of those guys, that's going to create a really significant advantage for you in terms of preparation, knowledge, development. So a lot of these schools are beefing up their nutrition, all of the support staff, the guys who the people who can interact with these players every day because there's no restrictions on that side, the strength side, right? where the, all the coaches have restrictions. So you're finding cracks to like beef up advantages where you have resources. And with more and more and more money getting funneled to the SEC with these new TV deals and everything, they got to find some way to spend it. So I expect to see more and more of this from UF. Now, they might not be as high-profile names as Charlie Strong or Kerwin Bell, but um, Dan Mullen, I think, needs to up his um, – support staff, these analyst-type positions, I think it would only benefit the program. And I think once the facilities are done and not all the resources are being directed in there, I think you'll see even more of this type of stuff. And so here's what's interesting about the modern landscape of the analyst position is it becomes a win-win for a very experienced coach. And here's why. If you're Charlie Strong and now you're fired, you can go become a coordinator for somebody. It depends on what opportunities are there, but you take a risk. You become a coordinator for a head coach, Maybe you don't love that head coach. Maybe the head coach is going to get fired soon. Then you get fired with them. So the thought is, if you have 
brand recognition as a coach, you can be a little selective with what you want. Maybe this year's not a great year. Take an analyst job at Florida. Maybe the next year a job comes available at Florida on field and you take it, or you've had an entire year to filter job opportunities, to link yourself with a coach you want or a program you want or a city you want. This gives you flexibility of choice. If you look at Steve Sarkeesian at Alabama, that's exactly what he did, right? Sat out a year, comes in, on-field coach. So it's a really interesting spot that's now been created. And of course, this makes sense from the team, Alan. Just 10 years ago, if you were the defensive coordinator or the offensive coordinator for Florida, you would have to have done many things, right? Film study, which you'd have, you know, you'd have you'd have tape guys and GAs helping you with. Recruiting, which you develop your own list. You have to go figure out what you wanted, how you needed to do it. Now with an analyst, we're going to say, all right, Alan, I'm going to hire James to be your analyst. And what you're going to do is you're going to tell James every kind of recruit you want. And now I'm going to scour the database, scour the high school, scour the people, and then line it up. Here's 100 guys that meet the exact criteria you wanted me to find. Now you go meet them. So I've just saved you countless hours. And the same thing goes with film prep. As opposed to having an inexperienced GA breakdown film, now I'm Todd Grantham and I go, Charlie Strong, if you could break down the next four opponents for me and I need to look specifically at this, you're going to get a head coach and a former defensive coordinator at a high level to say, here's what I see. It's greatly improving the process. It's ludicrous to me that we already don't have way more of these given that Alabama and Georgia do and given that obviously we can afford to do so. It's just too slow. We should have way more. This is any effective organization. You need to have support staff. You need to have enough people to help you with this. It just makes sense. And you mentioned one thing that's not in our news and notes, but now it should be. This contract is huge, right? That the SEC is about to get television-wise. In fact, it's so huge. Other conferences are legitimately very worried how it's going to affect their on-field performance because the dollars are so astronomically high with CBS refusing really even to compete anymore because ESPN and Disney is going to pay so much for this, you are right to say that's also going to change how much all of the athletic departments in the SEC have to spend on football. Well, you'll see some of these coaching hires that the SECs are making, the the salaries that they're paying bottoming guys are higher than some of the Pac-12 topping guys because there's so much money right now. It's really insane. So... How that, you know, again, because it's an artificial market, you can't, you're not paying players. You have all of this money to try to find advantages. And again, this is why these elaborate weight rooms get built. And these are why these football facilities, I mean, it's coming to the players ancillarily, but, you know, the smarter teams are f- figuring out how to deploy their resources in ways that gain them advantages on the field. Indeed. All right. Felipe Franks. Wild to think, Alan, just a year ago, we were talking about Felipe Frank's quarterback battle. It was his It was his to have. Was he going to improve? And now here we are talking about his transfer to Arkansas, which to me, very bad decision to go to the worst team in the SEC West against a historically good SEC West next year. I thought he should have went somewhere else where he could have played against softer comp and tried to pad a resume to try to get a shot at the NFL. This seems very curious. I'm not going to dog him. I wish it him all the, all the success here. But I'm surprised he chose Arkansas. Are you surprised? No, in that, you know, it's still somewhere somewhat close to home for him. New coach who focuses on the offensive line. 
you know, Sam Pittman coming over from Georgia. It's not a shock. Again, I, I think moving somewhere in the ACC or Big 12 might have fit him a little bit better. But, you know, you don't always get to choose all of your openings and who was recruiting him is a big question, too. So um, still a major program who's taking a shot on him. So, I, like you said, I hope that he performs really well. He has a great season with Arkansas. Remains to be seen. I mean, I don't know the Arkansas depth chart <laughs> intimately, so uh, I assume there's at least a strong chance he's going to be their starter next year, though. Yeah, you would hope so, for sure. He turned down less miles of Kansas and a few other opportunities. There was a lot of smoke about him heading up to Washington State, but once Mike Leach left to head down to the SEC, that obviously changed things. Uh, the good news for Felipe is he will be playing in, I think, the most entertaining division in all of sports, coaching-wise, personality-wise. That SEC West next year is must-see theater. It's absolutely incredible with the addition of Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach, Jimbo Fisher. I mean, it's crazy when you rattle these names off, right? I mean, it's Gus Malzahn, Nick Saban. It's it's a dream. It's an absolute dream. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right, 2020, on our text thread, we begin to refer to it as this many, many times is shaping up to be the year of the Gators. It's it's a year three test for Dan Mullen. And as fortune would have it, a lot of very good things have happened for the Gators in the offseason. One, we kept nearly all of our players. That's amazing. Yeah, almost everybody who could have turned pro or left decided not to. The one obvious one, C.J. Henderson, did leave, but that was expected. So everybody coming back. Everyone's back. Two, Georgia lost a ton of their talent. Do they have more? Yes. They lost a quarterback and almost all the rest of their players. I think 11 of the 13 starters from last year along their offense gone, including four-fifths of their offensive line. They were replacing an entire offense. Which is huge because everyone else in the SEC East, we have more talent than, we're better than, we're returning more than. So you look at it now and say this Florida-Georgia game looks favorable, as favorable as it's looked since we've been here. Then you flip over to the West and you say, well, LSU, our permanent opponent, lost everything. It almost feels like a Miami Marlins World Series and then gut your whole team. Yeah, scenario. no Joe Brady, Dave Aranda moves over to Baylor. Almost They have the exact opposite happen. Almost everyone who could turn pro did turn pro. Even guys who are like, I don't know, maybe. So also, I guess, Heisman Trophy winner Joe Burrow leaving. So the LSU experiment of high-end coordinators is going to have to reload itself. Can they reload quickly talent-wise and coaching-wise? And now we're going to find out what Edo is really made of. They still have talent on the roster. Of course, this will be a, a transition year, which is going to happen to any team when you've had the year yes. they've had. But that's favorable for us. And then we have maybe the easiest schedule that we have ever had. Possibly. I mean, ever. I mean, look at our schedule. It's it's the softest in the SEC East. I think it's the softest in all the SEC. It's not exciting, but it's it not. is winnable. But if you're if you're year three in the year three test and my methodology, if you're Dan Mullen, you're thinking this is the greatest thing ever, and, and it should be. This is this is as primed as you could imagine an upcoming season being for the Gators to have a tremendous amount of success. I think I think when all is said and done, that Florida is going to be the favorite to win the SEC East. 
I think that's what's going to happen, which is going to put expectations on Dan Mullen, something he hasn't yes. had before. Interesting. Uh, but I think that's going to happen. I also think Florida is going to be a trendy playoff pick because Alabama loses to a of course, their roster immensely talented. They're going to lose 12 guys to go to the NFL. Do they reload? Yes, they do. But still, a lot of narratives here where you're saying this is shaping up to be a very, very exciting and potentially banner-hanging year for Florida. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk a lot about this, obviously. but And then once you get to the playoff, what do you, what do you have in the tank? So that's assuming lots of things. But it's all on the table. It's all ahead of the Gators right now that they have the path in front of them. Nothing is stopping them from winning the SEC East, having a shot at that SEC West winner. And if you do that, then you're in the playoff, and then we'll see what happens after that. But not a lot of these kind of trap games that were on the schedule before. You know, you trade off Miami for another cup- cupcake team. This is the last year before the schedule really beefs up with Scott Strickland scheduling a lot of really interesting home-and-home series. Tennessee still not all the way back, maybe. Florida State still a little down. We already talked about Georgia LSU. You trade out Auburn as your for your SEC West opponent for Ole Miss, who that's probably a really fun storyline game, but who knows whether they're actually ready to compete under Lane Kiffin in his first year. Like you said, Everything lining up, but also, as you said, when everything lines up like that, the pressure mounts, the expectations are there for the first time, that you're not just looking up at Georgia, you become the hunter rather than the hunted, or vice versa, you become the hunted rather than the hunter, and that changes dynamics, that changes how people operate, how they see themselves, how they see the program, and not everybody handles that well. You can see maybe one Florida team, the Florida basketball team, under the weight of those preseason top 10 expectations, not doing as well as they want to. I know maybe those expectations were wrong. Again, the team can't control how people vote them in the preseason poll, but it does add a different element and different dynamic to the narrative of the season. It does indeed. And it will be fascinating to watch. We'll have so many good things to talk about. And if you want to place an early bet on Kyle Trask for Heisman. Or the Gators to win the SEC East. Or the Gators to win the SEC East or the SEC or the national title, you can. And another show sponsor, mybookie.ag, can help you do it. No one gives you more ways to win than they do. MyBookie's got the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sportsbook. Join now and MyBookie's going to double your first deposit. Use the promo code GatorNation to activate the offer. That's promo code GatorNation. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play... You win, you get paid. I don't even want to read this next thing. Do it. But I'm going to. The bowl game's concluded, obviously, a long time ago. And the only thing we're going to really talk about here is the national championship game and, and then my abysmal record. Allen went a fantastic 20-16. and 16 Robust. In the bowl games. Against the spread, keep in mind. 20-16 and 16 against the spread is very good, especially when the majority of these bowl games we've never seen a single <laughs> of the, if one of these teams play. That's a fantastic against the spread bowl game record. I, on the other hand... Went 13 for 23. So 13 wins, 23 losses. You should have faded all my picks, and it would have made you a ton of money. Uh, I got annihilated in the bowl games, which I guess shows that I, I know what I'm doing when I'm picking the games we follow, as evidenced by my record before the bowl games, and I have no idea what's happening when we're just picking random games I mean, on a sheet of paper. Bowl games are crapshoot in general. 
I love that I came out ahead just so I can look like a bowl game genius, but I promise you next year these numbers will probably be reversed or some other crazy number. Those are really fun picking. I, again, we picked them mostly so we can read off the crazy bowl names, but it was a fun bowl season followed by a really fun national championship game. What were your thoughts? And this is a while ago now, but James, turn your mind back to that game. What, what, this far into the future from that game, what are your, what do you remember about it? What are your takeaways? Yeah, what I remember from this game, I think, are probably three things. One, it's that LSU was the team of destiny we thought they were, and we said that coming into it. I picked Clemson because you have to dethrone the giant. Clemson goes up on them. You're starting to feel like, oh, this is something that could really rattle them. Uh, if there was anything that could force them out of their game, this kind of stage, it, it didn't. It just didn't matter. They were definitely the best team. In my opinion, one of the best seasons of college football that any national championship team has ever had with the teams they have beaten and played against. We talked about it beforehand. I'll remember that. I'll remember them as one of the greatest teams I've ever seen play with a defense that wasn't quite good enough to justify the greatest team ever. And we'll get to a bigger question in a second. Secondly, and this is weird that I will remember this, I will remember Odell Beckham giving out money and slapping a cop on the butt and doing a bunch of <laughs> dumb stuff in the locker room. And, and it's sad that I will remember that, but that was such like a big deal the day after the game or two that as it zooms out, that sticks with me a lot. It was kind of where all the news went. And then lastly, I'll remember Clemson in this game. They gave it everything they had. They took a lead. It was competitive. It was entertaining. And then ultimately, the much better team won. I don't think it mattered if Clemson had played LSU's schedule. LSU was a better team than Clemson was this year. And therefore, the third thing that's going to take with me is a guy in Joe Burrow, who we had talked about just last year as being a nice quarterback, a smart quarterback, transformed himself into an absolute juggernaut. I did not see that coming. No, I picked LSU to underachieve this year. I had no idea they were going to make the wholesale change. We talked about Joe Brady before the year. This was the higher of the offseason, right? Little did we know that it really was. And that's what I'll remember. I'll remember Brady's incredible, incredible season, how how good he was at getting the best out of that team. And so it's going to be the story of like a one-year coordinator with a quarterback that was a transfer with a team that just was meant to win at home in New Orleans. And, and well-deserved. I mean, they deserve to be the champion for sure. Yeah, it's so hard to win these games every year, right? You see Bama reload every year. They win a, a few, but they can't, they don't win every year. Even Clemson, a team that seemingly set up from the beginning to you know win another one, can't pull it off. It's really, really tough because you run into these teams like LSU who seemingly have magic at their fingertips every turn. You know, Getting to play... In New Orleans, in the championship game, was a huge advantage. I mean, nothing you can do about those things are set decades in advance. Let me ask you this. Was this LSU offense the greatest that you've watched like in your lifetime? This question is not even difficult to answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're seeing a progression of football. Uh, And of course, this leans into my own bias because I love what LSU does. We talked about it. LSU is the most NFL offense that exists in college football. 
they run a pro-style running attack with uh, what you would have considered to be a college-style spread passing attack, which a is very now modern NFL offense, correct? Like not a traditional, no, a now new NFL offense, which is now ubiquitous in the NFL to the point to where you would call it an NFL passing offense, but it's not. This is a college air raid principled passing offense. What makes it an NFL offense is how they move the receivers pre-snap, which you don't see a lot in college. Are the adjustments and splits by your receivers? In fact, the air raid will just kind of line the guys up, spread you out, and play. But the the pre-snap shifting in order to get a smaller lever win- leverage window, a, a better place to run. The the post route reading and route running, most of those routes that they're going to run against zones are not predetermined. They're read by the receiver and the quarterback, and that is such high-level stuff. You kind of had to have all those pieces aligned. And for that reason alone to me, it's by far the most productive offense, but also the greatest because the level that it hit execution-wise, I have never seen. This isn't a gimmick with a Cam Newton-like quarterback who's just bigger and stronger and running over people. This was an incredibly complicated, efficient, juggernaut offense uh, that was helmed by the perfect trigger man and just extremely impressive. And it puts into perspective how how well we did in Baton Rouge true. against them. Now, they weren't what they became later. They were kind of figuring themselves Defensively out. Defensively, too, they, they got better. They got better. Uh, but regardless, you know, it does put into perspective just how well we did. Kyle Trask outplayed Joe Burrow in that game, including statistically. There's not many games when Joe Burrow was outplayed as a quarterback, and he was in that game. Either way, to me, Alan, yes, this is the greatest offense that college football has ever seen. Yeah, it's hard to think of a team that accomplished more while putting up these kind of video game numbers, you can think about some of the Texas Tech offenses or even the Oklahoma offenses of the either like the Sam Bradford days or now there's been some really prolific Gator offense murdered people like all year. But they weren't as prolific or I don't know, even as dangerous as this LSU offense. It seemed like they could score in one, two, three plays almost every time. That was the thing that kind of took my breath away is they would score almost immediately and then do it again and do it again and do it again. Sometimes if you have that kind of quick strike offense and you slow them down, the team is like, I don't know what to do. They're like, okay, we'll shift gear. We'll downshift slightly and score in five plays or whatever. There's nothing you could do to them. We criticize our defensive staff heavily for the way we approach the game. And I think rightfully so. But I don't know if it would have mattered, but I wanted to see us do it. But I don't know if it would have mattered. They shredded people all year. And I don't know if we'll ever see this again, that they're a little bit ahead of the game. One, they were they were kind of weird. You look at their production, almost 100% of their production came from three receivers, one tight end, one running back. They stayed healthy almost the whole year. They had a veteran offensive line. They had the right combination of coaches. Let me give Steve Inzeminger a little bit of credit here, not for his skill, but for his humility and letting this guy come in and take over. They a lot of times you wouldn't that guy wouldn't even have that opportunity because the other guy, the older guy, would have shut him down. So that kind of confluence of top-down thinking and bottom-up creativity. This was an unreal team, and I, you know what? I'm glad that they're gone because I don't want to play them every year. But a fantastic year by LSU. We should really appreciate how prolific they were. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think that they hit the right window 
college defenses, much like NFL defenses, are going to continue to adjust. The next five or ten years of football, Allen, is going to be marked by teams getting guys who can play man-to-man. And, and the game flows like this. You can read the history of the game. It, it starts with man, moves to zone. People find concepts to beat zones, and it goes back to man. Um, and that's what you're going to see happen, I think, at the top level, is, is you're going to see teams that are going to have to be able to play man across the board and then mix in zone at the right times. Whereas the current game is to play a lot of zone and then mix in man. And in fact, you saw the 49ers do this. They were predominantly a zone team. Uh, The Patriots are predominantly a man team. And Bill Belichick tends to be kind of ahead of the curve. And ultimately in that game, despite how well they played, the Chiefs finally sort of figured out how to beat that. Uh, And they still put up 30 plus points in the Super Bowl, which which is a great score for the Chiefs. It's muted, right? But as time goes on, especially in college football, you are going to be looking for your coverage guys to be able to man up on these receivers. And then you can strategically double team certain ones of them. And then what do you need? You need a good pass rush, right? You need all those things. It's complicated, but they hit college football at the perfect time. They really did. Most of these teams still have linebackers that are, that are they're, they're fast and quick, but they cannot guard that kind of NFL spread offense. No, not at all. They can't do it. And so you're going to see this change as time goes on. You've heard us talk a lot about it. It'll be something that's fascinating to watch. But for that reason, this is such a peak. What they did was so incredible. It is hard to imagine a team defeating this again. And I would argue, although the game of football will continue to morph, of course it will, as you get late stage in a game, and football is now very late stage, in my opinion, with evolution, there's only so much you can do until we have what may be the next ginormous evolution, which could be something like what I run on my flag football team, like a three quarterback offense that's totally something different. like way you have to the variance something is so small until you have to completely different, it, yeah. right? Like a single quarterback throwing the football and doing things. I'm not sure there's much left there. A second quarterback off the line of scrimmage. There's a lot there, right? There's a lot there. I'm not saying we'll get there, but I'm trying to make the point that as you see football now with receivers and running backs and one quarterback, I'm not sure we'll see this stuff touched again until, again, it takes a major strategic tactical game shift uh, later. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many teams begin to zig if everyone starts to push even harder and harder towards LSU, towards Kansas City Chief kind of stuff. You know, the other team in the Super Bowl was the 49ers who famously, I mean, how many times did they run the ball in a row in the NFC title game? We're like, okay, you want to put all of your small linebackers and quick cover men out there? I guess we'll just run the ball 100 times, and you can't stop it. So the 49ers, not that talented of an offense, and through creativity and through sheer toughness, like road grade people, and that had speed too, but – Really interesting. But the you know, 49ers are susceptible in other ways. You build your team in one direction, you can get beat in the opposite one. So uh, this is the kind of like little cat and mouse game, what you're talking about, where it's late game where you're kind of just like small variances to take advantage of other variances. But nothing wholly unimaginative or imaginative maybe left. Like the 3-4, first time someone ran it, first time someone ran a you know zone blitz, it was like, what? You're like magic out there. We don't even know what you're doing. First time you're throwing a forward pass uh, more often than you're running the ball. So I haven't thought about in that way kind of the late game development. 
we'll see if somebody wants to do something really radical lower on down the ranks, you know, the kind of no punting ethos, that type of thing where they really take advantage of inefficiencies. And there is room for that, for sure. And that's what we're kind of hallmarking here. And that's a fun conversation for a different day. Let's go into our final thoughts. been a great pod so far. Basketball. We'll give you a basketball update. You mentioned this already. We have to have Justin Seitz, our basketball forecaster and prognosticator, back on the show to give his current updated thoughts. And we will do that in March when we come back. But right now, this has been a crushing disappointment for me. However... I'm now a year plus in saying that I've seen enough from Mike White. Last January, I declared that I was done with Mike White. I didn't think he could do it. Thankfully, we get a year of data to see what he could do, and I stuck by it. No matter what happens this year, no matter what the excuses are, if he can't get it done this year, he's not a good coach. Um, I don't want to hear about these, these freshmen aren't playing the right way or they're worried about their agents in their ears or whatever else is going on. I, It's my opinion. I personally have seen enough of Mike White as a coach right now. There are flip sides to this coin. He's young. You can figure it out. I tend not to buy into those storylines because they tend not to be real. However, the season is not over yet. And if you want to hold on to your last shred of hope for Florida basketball, it's that he's going to pull a Calipari, who is a well-established, fantastic basketball coach, and get his very young team to figure it out by tournament time. Right. I just think it's a fantasy right now, Alan. And again, but I'm out. I'm clearly indicating this conversation by saying I'm out on Mike White. I'm not out on the players. I think this team with a better coach would be way different than what it is now. That being said, we've had four wins now this season. And we were down by significant double digits. We've had come from behind wins. All right, we're recording this just after the Georgia game. The Georgia game, right? So we're down 22 last night, which is the, the best comeback in, in Florida history. These are not good signs. We're nine-point favorites to Georgia at home. We have a much more talented team. They're the number one overall player who went off, but... There's a million things I could talk about. It's not a basketball show. But I know that my thoughts are not necessarily echoed by everyone, Alan, including yourself. So if you're not on my side, what's the what's the other side? What's the what's the hopeful cast here that Mike White figures it out? What does the future of Florida basketball look like this season and next season included? Well, I think the problem, again, is partly expectations, right? Now, again, it seemed like Mike White was going to have everything he needed this year. A big man in Kerry Blackshear, some returning starters, talented freshmen. I'm not quite ready to cut bait on him. I think another problem is that he's having to live in the shadow of Billy Donovan, who's the greatest coach we'll have or probably ever will have, one of the best coaches in college basketball history. Like His results have not been that bad. Now, again, I don't know that Mike White, if you're looking for a guy who's going to be the a top five coach in the country, maybe you have enough data to say Mike White's not that guy and you're ready to cut bait with him, right? I don't know if I'm quite there. When you look at this team, you know, we kind of banked on a couple of things that didn't end up turning out quite the way we wanted them to. And the team is still all freshmen and sophomores. Three sophomores, like five freshmen and Kerry Blackshear. That's not really a recipe for success. It's definitely not a recipe for consistency. So you end up games like last night against Georgia where we look as bad as we looked all year in the first half and as good as we looked all year in the second half. Now, that is not like necessarily an excuse or it doesn't like wave off responsibility from Mike White. I 
have definite frustrations. I think I just have a little more patience, but I'm not disagreeing with you. I just don't know that I'm ready to come down as firmly as you have on that. I am excited to see this team in the tournament. I think a month from now, maybe they could be a little different. They're so young. They're so young. And you keep waiting for them to turn a corner. I don't know if they will. But every game feels like a referendum on them. Like if we had lost that Georgia game by 20, I'd been like, maybe everyone should get fired and leave. We won. I don't know. It was kind of fun. That's a weird place to be as a team, as a tournament hopeful team. But the NCAA is soft overall this year. There's not a lot of elite teams or elite players, or at least dominant players at this point. So maybe you could have the Florida team who could make some noise in the tournament and give some fun memories. I think there'll be a, a major reason why that would happen to me is is the emergence of, of Trey Mann. He emerged at a crucial part of that Georgia game yesterday. Made two threes in a row, then drove the baseline, made a sick layup, then drove the baseline, made a great pass for kickout three. Trey Mann is our best pure scorer, and he's been non-existent right. all year well, long. They were, I mean, that was part of the calculus of the season, that he was going to play well. That Scotty Lewis would be much better than he is. That, you know, the beginning of the season, Noah Locke wouldn't forget how to shoot a three. That the, our projections for all of these guys were significantly off. And so here's what I think we know now, and this is the midpoint evaluation. Trey Mann has plenty of game in there. Like, what we've seen from Trey Mann is just, he just hasn't put it together, but it's in there. It's in there, a whole full line. Lots of could, negatives with yeah, him too. He could start to really score. And I think with the sure. guy like him, if they're scoring, the rest of his game will pick up. There's a lot of freshman mental head case stuff that goes Turnover. on when you're not playing well. And then you're not confident. You're not playing defense well. If he gets it going, this will be an entirely <laughs> different team. We need him more than anyone to get it going. Well, he's the X factor for sure. Correct. I think you know what you get at an Emhard now. He's had some nice games, great game last night. He's he's been more consistent in running the ball. Getting to the point, rim. Getting to the rim, taking that mid-range jumper. I like what I'm seeing out of him now. He's fine. Keontae is great at driving. I think he's starting to settle more into what he needs to do. We know what we're getting out of him. Noah Locke may just be what he is. I can't figure out what's going on. I don't know if his game is wrecked because the three-point line is back, but it's hard to assume you're going to get much more out of him than a spot-up three-point shooter. Well, no, he doesn't know how to pass the ball. And he can't, right, he's ineffective But the shots the he gets in this offense, he should be shooting 50% if he's the kind of three-point shooter, which is, here's the other tough side of this, is our offense felt like it was set up to get him three-point shots, and he missed them all. And, of course, we were going to lose some games because of that. Yes, and so that's what's interesting with him. He kind of is, I think, at this point in time, what he is, an inconsistent shooter. You have to rely on that. Scotty Lewis is fine. He, he's he's kind of what he should be based upon what we knew for him out of high school. He's offensively raw. He's a phenomenal defender on a team that has a Trey man scoring, and then by bringing the ball to the floor, a consistent black shear, right? And you can start to build a roster now where this team is very competitive. But I think that's why, for me, if you want to find a storyline for this team to go far, it's going to have to be that Trey Mann plays well. We just don't have enough firepower to waste a five-star guy that's supposed to be your absolute lights-out scorer, your best kind of create-your-own-shot guy. You can't win with him getting five points a game. Can't do it. So hopefully we see him blossom. And if you want to know about aggregate data and why I feel the way about Mike White, first-year Mike White, NIT, coming off of the worst Billy year ever, fine. Four-seed, six-seed, ten-seed, we're trending towards a worse than 10 seed right now. If we lose to Georgia, what you said is true, Alan. If we lose to Georgia last night, all bets are off where this team is going. We might not even make the tournament. That would have been a horrific loss that we avoided. Now you may say, hey, look, Trey Man emerged. Team started to get some energy, played with a lot of effort. Crowd was behind the team. 
this is a young team. Those kind of games can change things. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of paint the picture of what could happen if things go well. And if things go poorly, you're going to look at a, a regression line, not a progression line. And you're going to look at five years of data. It's hard to find a narrative at a program like Florida where you come off one good coach to another that's rosy when you see that kind of regression and That is line. true, and that's a good, good point. I think this team could pivot away from that. You know, I don't know if they're going to improve their seating above last year's team seating that much that it is all that significant with their body of work already mostly in the can. But there's opportunity for them to do damage in the tournament. And then, you know, if these younger guys, if they all end up staying and this team is built of juniors and sophomores rather than freshmen and sophomores, then all of a sudden that's a very interesting roster. I, I can't believe that all of them might stay. That feels like a pipe dream. But if that happens, then all of a sudden you've got Mike White with another interesting opportunity, another data point where I think you can make even more firmer, I don't know, decisions about his future. He's not getting fired this year. So even the even if you wanted the, the fire Mike White kind of chant to get going amongst the fan base, he's not getting fired this year. So I think we still have to hold out hope that he's going to be able to turn it around. And let me give you the last example, because if you don't follow basketball closely, the low-hanging fruit is like, but look at all this talent we have. Well, at Maryland, my dad's alma mater, where my cousin graduated from, a lot of my family went there. They have a guy named Mark Turgeon, and he recruits in the top 10 every single year, and he's churning guys out into the NBA. And this year, they have another extremely talented team. They're a top five, just like we were, and they're like ranked 20th, and they're losing inexplicably to teams. They're super uneven. They play great, play terrible. That's the sign of a bad basketball coach. A great recruiter, terrible coach. Right now, that is Mike White. Now, Mike White's younger than Turgeon. Significantly. Less experienced. That's where the hope comes in. What you just said is key, though. If I am an athletic director, although right now I am totally out on Mike White, I'm in a weird position. Because if you do get a lot of these guys to stay... You should give him another year. Despite what I've seen, despite me even as an AD saying, I don't think this guy has what it takes. Because there are still question marks, you owe it to yourself to explore that question mark another year if that indeed happens. I agree with that. So for me, this is a very weird spot. Normally, I'm very black and white. You know what? Time for this guy to go. There's a little bit of finesse required with Mike right here. But to end this basketball conversation, I think, Alan, your statement still remains the most true. Every single game is a referendum on this program because when you have question marks, you have nothing foundational to base anything on. You can't root it on anything. It's crazy. So every game does mean something, and it means something big because if we're on air a month from now and we don't make the tournament, then it's clear that you fire Mike White, period. I mean, you, that's inexplicable. You can't do it. But if we make the tournament, win two games, get to the Sweet 16, bad season, but progress, guys stay, of course you keep him. You see what he does next year. So a lot of ways this can go. It should be a very interesting, probably frustrating close to the basketball season until we're on the air here in March, which we'll come back on and recap. And speaking of March, we will come back in early March to do another pod. And this pod is going to be one of probably a couple in the offseason where we're going to want to get your feedback and suggestions. So if you have either a mailbag item or something you want us to cover schematically, there's been a lot of people referencing throughout the year, hey, talk about this offense or this scheme or this defense or whatever. Send those to us, Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, email. 
Let us know what you want us to cover on that podcast, and we will talk about those things. So mailbag slash schematics, uh, whatever, do it. Ask us. That will be that entire pod. So if we have two topics, we'll cover two topics. We have 10, we'll cover 10. Uh, Send them in, and we'll get to those. All right, that's all I've got, Alan. Anything else from you? Nope. Let's close it out. Thanks again, everybody who supports the show, for listening, for being a patron. We love you guys. We'll see you in about a month. Chapman, welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.